Take the Bible, uh, take your Bible in hand and turn with me to the book of Proverbs. We're continuing our study in Proverbs. We'll pick up in the last verse of Proverbs chapter 28, um, which is verse 28, and we'll read through verse 15 of chapter 29 as we're beginning to wrap up this section that covers um, from chapter 25 to the end of chapter 29, um, and then we'll shift gears for this two-chapter conclusion in 30 and 31 of Solomon's Proverbs to his son and to us. But today our scripture comes from Proverbs 28, beginning in verse 28. So please hear the word of the Lord, take up your Bibles and read along. When the wicked rise to power, people go into hiding. But when the wicked perish, the righteous thrive. A man who remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. When the righteous thrive, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people groan. A man who loves wisdom brings joy to his father, but a companion of prostitutes squanders his wealth. By justice, a king gives a country stability, but one who is greedy for bribes tears it down. Whoever flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his feet. An evil man is snared by his own sin, but a righteous one can sing and be glad. The righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. Mockers stir up a city, but wise men turn away anger. If a wise man goes to court with a fool, the fool rages and scoffs, and there is no peace. Bloodthirsty men hate a man of integrity and seek to kill the upright. A fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself under control. If a ruler listens to lies, all his officials become wicked. The poor man and the oppressor have this in common. The Lord gives sight to the eyes of both. If a king judges the poor with fairness, his throne will always be secure. The rod of correction imparts wisdom, but a child left to himself disgraces his mother. And I am going to go ahead and read verse 16 as well. When the wicked thrive, so does sin. But the righteous will see their downfall. Let us pray. God of peace, we ask that you would sanctify us today through your word. Through Jesus and the Spirit, keep us blameless as we prepare for Jesus' return. Remind us that you are faithful and that you will do all that you promised to do in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You ever play blocks with a child? child brings you their blocks, whether it's wooden blocks or Legos or, or whatever blocks it is, they, they bring them to you and they, they, they just look at you or, or implore you to, to play blocks with them. And, and typically you, you, you set out to teach them by example that anything you build needs a good foundation. And so you take the blocks and you, you build a good foundation and you show them how to set the blocks together. And then you show them that you can begin to stack the blocks one on top of the other, and, and you're getting excited because you're building one of the largest, tallest towers with blocks that you have ever built. But there comes a point where this becomes a difficult endeavor because as you have started to build this tower of blocks for the child, what is the child trying to do? The child's just going to smack it right on down, and so you're excited and you're building with one hand and fending off the child with the other as you just try to get that tower taller and taller. But 
eventually it's a losing proposition. You either run out of blocks or the child, you know, uh, zigs when you zag and they come through and just knock everything down. Families, communities, even kingdoms, Solomon says, are very much like that. They are built on wisdom and then ultimately destroyed through childish folly. In the passage we're looking at today, Solomon focuses on the reality that a country will be built and rooted in wisdom. It will have that strong foundation. But if we're not careful, it can fall through rulers who are marked by a childish folly. And he shows us, he shows us these realities through a comparison of righteous and wicked rulers by teaching the two paths to destruction and by pointing once again to the foundational role that parents have in teaching wisdom. First, the rulers, the righteous and the wicked rulers are compared. Now, in the larger section, as I mentioned a few moments ago, of 25 through 30, Proverbs 28 and 29 are, are one whole section in that larger section of 25 through 30. And they are marked by comparison verses. And in, verse tw- in chapter 28, verse 2, and verse 12, and verse 28, and then also 29, 2, and 16, we have these verses that open with when. And, and the second line begins with when as well. And they compare a, a rebellious country with a righteous country or a wicked ruler with a righteous ruler. Verse 28.2 says, when a country is rebellious, it has many rulers, but a man of understanding and knowledge maintains order. When a country rebels against God's rules of wisdom, it, it becomes unstable in its rulers. But whenever a country, whenever a ruler is founded upon the wisdom that God gives, there is stability within that country, within that kingdom. He says in 28.12 that when the righteous triumph, there is great elation. There is honor and celebration and glory given to God and to the ruler. But when the wicked rise to power, men go into hiding. This is actually paralleled in the first line of the next one that says when the wicked rise to power, people go into hiding. Most likely in the context of the book of Proverbs, the people that go into hiding are the righteous and the wise, because as we'll see later on in verse 10 of this chap- of chapter 29, that the wicked, the folly, the foolish will attack in anger and in hatred will attack the righteous. Verse 28 of chapter 28 says, when the wicked rise to power, people go into hiding. But when the wicked perish, the righteous thrive. Whenever the wicked are punished, whenever the wicked come under God's judgment, there is an opportunity for the righteous people to thrive and increase. And the sense that we get here is that when the wicked triumph, the righteous suffer. But when righteousness and wisdom triumphs, everybody prospers. Everybody thrives. The next verse, when the righteous thrive, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people groan. Once again, when righteousness and wicked, wickedness is there, there's a sense of elation and celebration in the kingdom. And then finally, he wraps up with when the wicked increase, transgression increases, but the righteous will look on the downfall. And the, the look on the downfall is there of those of the wicked. We see this contrast of prosperity and peace and thriving and increasing whenever wisdom and righteousness rules the day. 
And yet depression and destruction and death and judgment whenever wickedness rules the day. We, we, we will live in a culture where either wickedness thrives or where righteousness thrives, where folly rules the day or where wisdom will rule the day. And Solomon highlights the fact for us that the reason this is, the main reason this is, we see in chapter 29, verse 1, is that the wicked harden themselves against rebuke. A man who remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. Throughout the book of Proverbs, rebuke is a tool to teach righteousness, to teach wisdom. Rebuke is a verbal correction that when you see somebody straying off the path of wisdom, you correct them verbally to move them back to the path of wisdom and to the path of righteousness. And we've learned in, this, in chapter 28, and we see it here again, that, that when rebuke comes, the fool will ignore it, will turn his back on it. And in doing that, he will harden his heart more and more against the rebuke. And the rebuke has to get stronger. Sometimes we read about the rod of correction within the book of Proverbs. When rebuke no longer works, there needs to be more um, drastic corrective measures taken. But the picture here is that the wicked, the fool, will continue to harden and stiffen their necks and their hearts against the rebuke that comes. And Solomon, once again, in this particular passage, reminds us that judgment comes upon those who harden their heart against wisdom and against righteousness. Verse five and six, it says, whoever flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his feet. The evil man is snared by his own sin, but a righteous one can sing and be glad. I struggled with honesty in my younger years, and I struggled with honesty because, to be honest, I embraced lying as a means of communication. What's the problem with a lie? It starts out simple, but then you've got to tell a little bit more complicated one to keep the illusion going. And you eventually continue this cycle to where nobody believes you anymore because number one, the lies are so far-fetched. And number two, sometimes you don't even know what's coming, whether or not what's coming out of your mouth is true or false. You have convinced yourself so much that your false narrative is the truth. Sin becomes its own punishment. But even bigger than that, sin brings judgment and destruction. He said in verse 16 that, that ultimately the righteous will see the downfall, the destruction, the judgment of the wicked. And the reason for that is ultimately our sin deserves God's wrath, His judgment, His punishment. The murderer executed for a sin here on earth will still have to answer to God for that sin. The rapist that spends the rest of his life in prison will still have to stand before God to answer for his sin. And each and every one of us will. And Solomon gives us these dire warnings not to not to say that God is mean and will punish sin, even though it is true that he will punish sin. But Solomon repeatedly gives us these warnings that sin, that folly will be judged. As a directive to change our lives. 
Our children know that there are consequences for their actions, not because we're hoping to be able to punish our children, but because we want them to be able to have an incentive to stay on the right path and to walk forward. And Solomon reminds us, as we're reminded throughout Scripture, that there will come a time where the where the wicked will be punished and the righteous will see and be glad, not because we're happy that the righteous are punished or the wicked are punished because God is glorified in both judgment and in salvation. And there will come a time when each and every one of us will stand before God. We will give an account for our lives. We will be asked, what is your defense? Many will say to God, my defense is that all these bad things I did are are far outweighed by the good that I have done, or at least that's what they think they will say. Revelation 5 and 6 tells us that what they will actually say is that they will beg for the mountains to fall upon them, to hide them from the holy presence of God. But if your hope, if your defense is that Jesus has paid the penalty for my sin and I am covered by his righteousness, then we will rejoice because our judgment has passed to him. We will have grace and eternal restoration with our God. Solomon gives these comparisons to God or to Rehoboam as an incentive to rule well. Does Rehoboam want a stable and secure kingdom? Pursue wisdom and righteousness over the wealth and prestige of this world. Do you, brothers and sisters, want a life rooted in the bedrock of wisdom and righteousness? Do you want the hope of knowing that you are reconciled with God and pursue the wisdom and righteousness over the wealth and prestige of this world? But then Solomon, after highlighting for Rehoboam the fact that the wicked will be destroyed, he highlights two paths to destruction in verses 7 through 14 of chapter 29. The first path to destruction is uncontrolled anger will bring destruction to the kingdom. Verses 8 through 11 focus on fools and the anger that rages and destroys. And there's some great word pictures in here. It says that that mockers will stir up a city. The, the, The ultimate of fool is the mocker. His heart is so hardened against wisdom and against righteousness that He sees nothing except for his own agenda, his own wants and his own desires. And one of the things that he will do to get those things is to stir up anger and frustration and outrage within the kingdom, within the culture. But he says here, wise men turn away from anger. This relationship with anger is highlighted once again in the fact that if a wise man goes to court with a fool, the fool rages and scoffs and there is no peace. I had a college professor that told me one time, he said, never get into an argument with somebody who knows nothing because you have to ground all your arguments in truth and in reality. And someone who is a fool will argue anything just to make themselves right. And that's the picture that we have here is that the the fool will rage so much in this discussion, in this argument with the wise man that the wise man will be dogged and will have no peace. He goes on to say that bloodthirsty men hate a man of integrity and seek to kill the upright. 
How many of you knew that kid in school that no matter how little they studied, no matter how little they opened the book or paid attention in class, they still got A's on every single test. You were frustrated to be around them, weren't you? The wicked feel that way about the righteous because the righteous, the wise, confront them with their wickedness just in their pursuit without any verbal rebuke, without any use of the rod. Just the fact that they are living a righteous and wise life confronts and convicts the fool. And what do they do with that confrontation? What do they do with that conviction? Instead of turning toward wisdom, They turn toward hate and seek to destroy the upright. The fool ultimately gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself under control. We seriously underestimate the destructive power of unrighteous anger. It destroys families. It destroys lives. And Solomon says here it will destroy a kingdom. He warns Rehoboam against this anger that will rage up, this anger that he will potentially use to destroy people around him. And he says, if you don't get anger under control, both in yourself and in your kingdom, you will lose your kingdom. We live, we live in a kingdom fueled by outrage. Most of our political decisions are fueled by outrage more than they are fueled by wisdom. And we as the people of God have to be careful that we do not get wrapped up in the outrage machine that is our discourse in our culture today. Yes, you have to stand on the foundation of wisdom. And yes, the world will turn their anger upon you because they hate you. They hate the the, the testimony that you give because they hate your Savior. But we have to guard ourselves against the anger that our world seeks to force upon us. There's a time for righteous anger. There's a time to get indignant, and we'll talk about it here in a minute or two. But there, but we have to guard our hearts against the outrage that is there for the sake of destruction. And so Solomon warns that the destruction to a kingdom can come through anger. He also warns that destruction comes to a kingdom through a lack of justice, a lack of regard for the poor. He says in verse 7 of chapter 29, he says, The righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. Do we care in, in our country about the poor and the helpless? We claim to. We claim to have in our kingdom, in our culture, a high regard for the oppressed and the downtrodden. Unless that helpless, oppressed person resides in the womb. And then they're free game. The outrage, man, I I really need to stay off social media, but the outrage lately over a law that protects the unborn is a murderous anger and an outrage. And I don't know whether to cry or to rage. 42 million people a year worldwide destroyed through abortion. I don't know whether to cry or to rage. 
Do we care about the poor? Do we care about the oppressed? Do we care about the downtrodden? God does. And He calls us to do the same thing. And it starts with what, how we view life. Our culture views people's value based on their economic station. God values us because we are created in His image. And, and as verse 13 says, we need God to change our eyes so that the poor can see the oppressor as somebody created in the image of God and the oppressor can see the poor as somebody created in the image of God. And it's only when that happens that we will fully understand the horror that we have wrought upon humanity. We all need to have our eyes open to the reality that every other human being is created in the image of God. Yes, they may be born into hardship, but because they are the image of God, they deserve to be born. Yes, we may disagree on the best route to justice in our country, but they deserve your respect because they are created in the image of God. And it takes hearts changed by God for us to see it. God cares. And if we don't care, the kingdom will be taken. And finally, after comparing a wise kingdom and and foolish kingdoms, after telling us these two areas that if we don't get them under control, the kingdom will be destroyed, Solomon reminds us once again of the foundation. We talk about kingdoms, we talk about cultures, we talk about societies, but the book of Proverbs is a book written from a father to a son to teach the son wisdom. We're reminded in here, in verse 3 and in verse 15, it says, A man who loves wisdom brings joy to his father, but a companion of prostitutes squanders his wealth. We should picture uh, the prodigal son when we read that, a, a reminder that that sometimes, yes, the children go astray, but, but the father sought to raise him on the foundation of wisdom. And then verse 15 tells us the rod of correction imparts wisdom, but a child left to himself disgraces his mother. And with, this, with these, these two verses in here, we're reminded that it's not just the father, it's not just the mother, it's the, it's the parental work of teaching wisdom to the children. You know, we don't know if Rehoboam had children at the time that Solomon wrote and compiled these these proverbs to, to give to him, but we do know that he would have expected Rehoboam at some point to have children. And Solomon was smart enough to understand that if he wanted a good kingdom founded upon wisdom, that not only did he have to teach Rehoboam, but Rehoboam had to teach his children as well. And the call goes out to you also. Our world knows the truth of the statement that if you want to change a community or a culture, where do you start? With the children. The church sometimes has forgotten this truth, this reality. Many of us, I myself have made this mistake in the past, and thanks be to God that he chose to exhibit grace and wisdom to my children in spite of me. But many times we think that these two hours on a Sunday morning 
are enough to counteract the influence that the world has the other 166 hours of the week. Someone is training up your children, your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews. Somebody is training them up. What catechism are they memorizing? What truths are they learning? What are you doing to counteract the catechisms that the world is seeking to teach your children? Oh, they don't call it catechisms like we do. They don't say we're teaching your children truth. They just let it seep in through music, through television, through social media. Parents and grandparents, you have a unique opportunity to train up your children in the way that they should go. Take it. Take it with prayer. Take it with with an anticipation that God will change their life through your meager attempts to raise them according to His truth. Take what opportunity you have to lead your children, your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews in the way of wisdom and in the way of righteousness. The ultimate picture that we have here from Solomon is that wisdom builds while folly destroys. Whether it's a kingdom or a culture or a country, whether it's a state or a city or a county, whether it's a church or a family. If you don't start with and maintain the foundation of wisdom and righteousness, the flailing with your arm will be totally ineffective against the culture as they try to come in with their childish folly to destroy everything that you have built. But God promises that for those who seek to build upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets whose cornerstone is Jesus Christ, that He will provide a sure and secure family and church and yes, ultimately, kingdom and culture that is built upon the bedrock of His truth. So what are we building on in our lives? What is your foundation in your family? Let us pray. Our God and Father above, remind us of the reality that wisdom builds while folly destroys We don't often see it in such black and white terms, but the reality is there. That if we live according to what we think is right, what we think is true, what we think is equitable, what we think is just, we destroy anybody that gets in our way. We as humans have a disturbing history of every time we try to make heaven without God, we create hell. And yet you promise that through wisdom you will build. You will build churches, you will build family, you will build communities. And as long as we pursue your wisdom, your truth, your equity, your justice, that you will honor us with grace 
with peace, and ultimately the true heaven, the new heavens and the new earth. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. In God's sovereignty, some of you have built upon a foundation that is solid and secure. And in God's sovereignty, despite all your arm waving, the tower has been knocked down. Whenever my kids would knock down the tower, what was always there? The foundation was still there. Know that God in His sovereignty still has that foundation there and He can build upon it again if He so chooses and if it so brings Him glory. But as you pray to God for His sovereignty, for His working in an area where you know the foundation is laid, for those of you laying the foundation today, take this blessing upon you. Dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.